The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Bishop Michael Curry, is the 27th and current presiding bishop and primate of the Episcopal Church. Elected in 2015, he's the first African-American to serve as presiding bishop in the Episcopal Church. He's the author of a number of books, including Crazy Christians, A Call to Follow Jesus, and his most recent book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. And we're going to talk a little bit about both books. A review of Love is the Way appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Bishop Curry, welcome to Essential Conversations. Well, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure. The books were fun, and I I am actually a big fan of the Episcopal Church. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. I have uh, a lot of friends in the clergy, some my age in their 70s, some way younger. Uh, It's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating church. Well, thank you for that. Oh, Good to have friends like you. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't calling you to explain what I don't understand about the church. But I, I, I am. I am a fan of the the church. I'm also a fan of Jesus, and we'll get into that uh-huh. as we go along. B- before we get into the new book, "Love Is the Way," holding yeah. on to hope in troubling times, I want to ask you about crazy Christians. Uh-huh. So, in that book, I'm, I'm going to quote you. You write, "Forgive me for saying it this way." But Jesus was and is crazy. And those who would follow him, those who would be his disciples, those who would live as and be the people of the way are called to be exactly that, crazy. If you asked me what the church needs today, I would say this. We need some crazy Christians. Yeah. Close quote. I loved that. Uh, I wrote a book called Holy Rascals, and it's it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah. I, I see Jesus as, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a holy rascal. So yes. I have two two questions so we can get into this a little bit. I'm going to ask you to define crazy Christian for us. Uh-huh. And then after you do that, I'll, I'll ask you a, a second question on that. I preached a sermon by that title, which was the springboard for the book. And the occasion of the sermon was at a convention of the Episcopal Church. And the particular feast day that was being observed was the feast day of Harriet Beecher Stowe. And, you know, I started reading about her a little bit more than than I kind of knew from school and reading up about her. 
And the more I read about her, the more I realized that whatever her Christian faith did for her, it caused her to be out of step with many in the society and the culture. It, it caused her to be almost intrinsically countercultural, which is to say Harriet Beecher Stowe could have lived a, a, wife, a life of wealth, of satisfaction, of going to parties and cotillions and that kind of thing and just living it up and having a nice life. And instead, um, she made a decision to be somebody who would participate in the movement to set slaves free, to participate in the Underground Railroad. And at one point, I remember uh, saying, I had this image of this kind of quaint, quaint New England lady in her rocking chair, knitting. Meanwhile, in her basement, runaway slaves were on their way to Canada. And, and asked, how does somebody like that, who could have just lived a life of self-centered privilege, become someone of self-sacrifice? And that's where I made the connection to the teachings and the way of Jesus of Nazareth and his way of love, that it is intrinsically countercultural. And the world will call you crazy when you do that. And, and that was where it really came from. I mean, I can even connect the way of love is sometimes countercultural. Sometimes it seems crazy. So I use the metaphor of craziness. And kind of ended even the sermon just saying, you know, think about people who have changed the world and they have tended to be people who were labeled crazy in their time. And yet the thing that was called sane in that time was actually the thing that was crazy. Yeah, well, love, love is given the cultural norms. Yes. Love is crazy. Yeah. I, now, you know, I mentioned at the top of the, the show in the introduction that you are African-American. Mm -hmm. So and, and I am not. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I want to be respectful and not, uh, let, let me put it this way. I'm just going to ask my questions and <laughs> you can tell me how question. stupid <laughs> I am. But I, I think what, if I remember right, one of the big criticisms of James Baldwin was that he talked a lot about love. Yeah. And people right. thought they didn't see that as, I mean, his own, his own people didn't see that as right. countercultural. Right. They saw it as sort of, um, what, collaborating or something. Right. But it, right. It seemed to me, and I'm going to ask you what you think about it, but it seemed to me to be radically countercultural then, mm -hmm. no less than it is now. Mm -hmm. There is, because I'm 67, so, you know, I mean, I've got a few years under my belt. I'm not as old as some, but, you know, older than others, been around. One of the things I'm beginning to realize, and the more I listen to Scripture, the more I live, I've come to the conclusion that the opposite of love is not necessarily hatred. It's not hate. The opposite of love is unbridled self-centeredness, hmm. that the nature of love is that it is giving. It's not self-centered. It actually seeks good and the welfare and the well-being of others as well as the self. But, but it seeks the good and welfare of others as well as the self, not just self. And I think, you know, biblically, you can look at that. I mean, there, I mean it's all over the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. It's just all over. It's all over the scriptures. That self-sacrificing love is seen as one of the greatest and highest forms of love. There are many forms of love, but that's seen as one of the greatest and highest forms of love. And I just think that that notion in and of itself is intrinsically counterintuitive to myself and countercultural for all of us. Because it means that I'm being called to live a life that is not centered on Michael. That's not about me, but that's about we. And, and that is sometimes counter to my instincts of my own self-preservation first and your second, um, and counter to our cultural instinct, 
you know, we're number one, we're all that matters, and everybody else is on the periphery. Yeah. That's yeah, countercultural and counterintuitive. Sure. Our the, uh, mainstream American culture, and maybe oh. elsewhere, but certainly mainstream American culture is all about me, all about the self. It's a zero-sum yeah. game that yeah. uh, if I'm going to win, somebody else has to lose. You, you do give a very succinct, wonderful uh, definition of love in the book, but I want to hold on to that for a second because huh? I want to stick with the crazy Christian idea. Okay. Uh, actually, before I even give you that, I don't know if you're familiar with Rabbi Hillel, who oh, yes. lots of scholars thought uh, Jesus either came out of his yeah. school or perhaps was actually taught by him. Yeah. And, and Hillel, just apropos to what you just said, Hillel is famous for a number of one-liners, but one of them <laughs> in English is, uh, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Uh -huh. But if I'm only for myself, yes. what am I? Yes. So it's, it's not an either or, it's an and. Right. And, and, and I think Jesus embodied that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what makes him crazy. So you say, we need some crazy Christians. Uh -huh. So I think I've got the definition of what a crazy Christian is. But I want to know how, you know, here you are, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. Uh, You're trying to raise up crazy Christians. Yeah. I want to know how that's going. <laughs> and, and how the church, if this is true, and I'm, I'm just assuming because it's an organization— how the church is pushing back against the very notion of raising crazy Christians. Oh, that's great. That's a great question. Part of what's going on there, I think, is calling the church back to its deeper roots in the teachings and the spirit of Jesus of Nazareth. My sense is that if you look at, at the history of Christianity or history of the church, it has erred profoundly the further it has gone away from the core teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and his spirit and embodied all sorts of abstract abstractions and just become part of the world or part of empires or part of the culture and all of that. kind. When, when the church has been reformed historically, it's been when somebody has pushed it back to its roots to actually take a look at the Jesus of Nazareth and the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor and the meek and uh, those who seek for justice, the peacemakers, have pushed it back to the Jesus of Nazareth and actually listen to his teachings when, you know, at, at that, I mean, I love that conversation with that lawyer who says, what's the greatest law in Moses, in the teachings of Moses? And Jesus reaches back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God, I mean, and your neighbor as yourself, which gets to the point you're making. You love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. That's the whole, there's the whole law. There's the key to life. That Jesus, when the church gets back to that Jesus, then the church doesn't sanction slavery. Then the church doesn't sanction the subjection of anybody. Then the church is not on the side of those who would oppress and put down, but always um, on the side of those who are put down and needing to be lifted up. Then the church finds itself on the right moral side, if you will. But when it becomes complicit with the culture, with the way things are, that is when the church has historically gotten into diabolical stuff that has hurt and harmed human beings and sometimes the creation itself. Yeah, I mean, the last thing it, it deals with when, when that happens is, you know, Matthew 25, what you do yeah. to the least of these. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, I, I totally get that. As the head of the Episcopal Church, I mean, <laughs> Martin Luther's was, was an attempt to go back to, mm. you know, Jesus. And, and I, you know, it's all a matter of opinion, I guess. But I would say the Quakers tried to do that. Yeah. But the Anglican Church 
Mm-hmm. That was a political thing, mm-hmm. right? That wasn't that wasn't let's get back to our roots. That was let me do what I want to do as king, so that and, and tell the pope to just oh. you know, to shove it. So oh. and then and then the church, the Anglican Church, which I know is not uh-huh. exactly the Episcopal, the Anglican Church becomes the Church of Empire. Yeah, you know, the, yes. When, when the Brits used to say, you know, the the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, the sun never sets on the Anglican Empire. Yeah. So how strong? Is this pension for empire even in the American, you know, the Episcopal Church? Some of it's cultural in the culture. Um, you know what I mean? How how something from the past gets past, gets carried on in the present. It's almost just like it's in the water. It's there. But that but you hit on something. Whenever religion gets allied with the empire, whatever empire is, it's in danger of losing its soul. And that's what Jesus of Nazareth, his way, consistently points away from being allied with empire, but actually seeking the good and the welfare and the well-being of those who are part of the empire, including the emperor, if necessary. You see, you see yeah. we struggle with that in the Episcopal Church, in the in the wider Anglican communion, um, even though the British Empire you know, doesn't exist anymore, the culture of it and the history and the legacy of it does. And so I, that's why I've been really encouraging, and, and the time will tell whether the, it bears fruit, that I've said to the Episcopal Church, we must no longer simply be the Episcopal Church. That's fine. My pension is tied up to that. I get that. <laughs> but that's not good enough. We must become a Jesus movement that has its institutional embodiment as the Episcopal Church, but at its heart and soul is actually trying to live out the teachings of Jesus about love and forgiveness and compassion and justice and goodness and about changing the world from the nightmare it often is into the dream that God intended when God first said, let there be anything. That's what this faith is about. And I said, the closer we get to that, those teachings and that core of Jesus of Nazareth, we will find our soul again, and we will be liberated from empire. Amen, Brother Curry. Oh, <laughs> I, oh, and, amen, and Rabbi. I think we, amen, Brother Rabbi. Amen. <laughs> and you know, and we should we should be clear, or at least I want to be clear, that this is not a Christian problem. This no. is a problem with religion and power. Right. So you could say the same thing about Judaism in the state of Israel, sure. where for the first time in in two thousand years. Judaism has an army, and yeah. it doesn't go well. Religion and that you know, religion yes. always uh, becomes the handmaiden of the powerful, and not the prophetic yes. counterculture. And the exactly. same thing with with a lot of of what happens in Islam. In Islam, so, yes, and actually in Buddhism and Hinduism in India with Hindu nationalism. I mean, it's, yes. it's happening on a global scale. Let's take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Rob Bell. Rob has released a profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Rob as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. So let me, let me switch gears here and go to the new book, uh-huh. uh, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. Well, we certainly mm-hmm. understand the troubling times part. If we're talking culturally and socially, and you yeah. in the book, you're also talking a more personal level. But mm-hmm. you know, the title of the book begs the question, "What is love?" And you gave this one beautiful answer, but you give another one in the book that really struck me. I'm just going to quote it to you, not going to ask you to remember it. Uh-huh. But you write, "Love is a firm commitment 
to act for the well-being of someone other than yourself, close quote. How difficult is it to overcome what you called a moment ago, this unbridled self-centeredness? Yeah. Just not, I mean, you could talk as a culture and, and, and that's fine, but even as an individual, mm-hmm. How, mm-hmm. how difficult is it to do that? I mean, I mean, it is difficult. I'm, I was talking to somebody earlier today, not about the book specifically, but we got into the conversation. I said, you know, if you hit me, my first instinct, my instinct is probably going to be either to hit you back or to run. It's going to be fight or flight. And, you know, I don't know if that's just part of our evolutionary biology. I have no idea. But that's the way human beings are. Love is a third way. That, that sometimes there's a third way. It is, it is a way to engage that seeks the good and seeks to bring out whatever the good is possible in a, in a given situation. That is the way of love. That is not easy to do because that's not often my automatic reflex, my automatic reflex. And so I have to learn it. I mean, when Dr. King and, and going back to uh, Mahatma Gandhi and others, back to Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, you go back there, nonviolence is actually almost an equivalent of love lived out in action that the nonviolent way, the way of love, they're almost synonymous. And I mean, that was the genius of Gandhi realized that, wait a minute, this talk of love, and he saw it in Hinduism, and he saw it in the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. This It's not a passivity that doesn't seek to um, accomplish the good and that becomes complicit with evil. It's a way of overcoming evil, not with more evil, but with good. <laughs> that takes work. That's hard. That's not easy. I mean, I've realized, at least in my own life, There's some capacity within all of us to do that, but it gets enhanced and strengthened from two other sources. One is other people, and and mentioned communities of love. Other people can help us on that journey, both in terms of accountability and in terms of support um, and in terms of guidance. And I think ultimately God, I mean, the source of love, I mean, I believe that God is the source of love, the energy of love. I mean, like the New Testament says, God is love. I think that is about the best theological definition of God. I haven't thought of anything better. That's God is love. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Um, you want, you want something better? Is, huh? <laughs> you want a better definition? This one comes from uh, Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, uh-huh. who you know as, as St. Paul. Yeah. God is that in whom we live and move and have our being. Oh, that's a good one. That, to me, from the book of Acts, is the best definition of God. True to the Hebrew, true to the Chinese concept of Tao, to the Buddhist, to the Hindu Brahmin. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, I I, I think I love that definition. But I absolutely understand what you're saying about God is love. So I want to talk a little bit more about God with you in a sec. Uh But... Oh, oh, yeah. So I get it. I get it. Jesus is all about love. Yet turn turn the other cheek as if that were an act of of passivity. Right. When, in fact, and I'm going to tell you what I know and ask you to see if Uh you think this is true. And this is not my own idea. This comes from the Christian theologian, um, Walter Wink. That's right. 
Right. So, okay, so you want to you unpack Wink for us, and I don't have to do it, but Wink's understanding of turning yeah. the other cheek? Yeah, it's the backhanded slap thing. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's, that you it's, turn the other cheek, and you force the person who is imposing the violence to actually hit you with respect and not with disrespect. It's moral jujitsu. You take the energy of negative and you flip it into a positive. Exactly. I mean, Jesus yeah. says, if they strike you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. I mean, for 2,000 years, we remembered the, it was the right cheek yeah. because, like you said, the backhanded slap, uh, Romans yeah. were obsessed with being right-handed. So it's yeah. a backhanded slap, the way you'd smack a dog, or it's a, it's a sign yes. of, of dehumanization. Yeah. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, the only way a right-handed Roman can hit you on the, on the left cheek is with an open palm yes. or a fist, I suppose. That's a sign of uh, anger between equals. Yes. His, and, and there's a bunch of these, you know, go the extra mile there. There's a bunch of them. But mm-hmm. these are all powerful confrontational moments in the gospel yeah. that w- we have over the millennia turned into Jesus meek and mild. Oh yeah. When yeah. when he was anything but right, right. What what happened to Jesus? <laughs> Jesus was what? founding a nonviolent movement. Right. Um, so what happened? The nonviolent. Well, I think it's deliberate. I mean, on the one hand, he's much more manageable when we turn him into Jesus, right. meet and mile, because he doesn't demand anything of me. Right. He's not. He doesn't challenge me. Um, and I know full well I have domesticated Jesus whenever I've made it made myself too comfortable with him. I don't think it would have been particularly comfortable to be around Jesus. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Would I would love to have been there. Lovingly uh, unsettling. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the same kind of thing has happened to Martin Luther King. Right. Um, now, again, Martin Luther King was a human being and he had frailties like everybody else, just like me, just like you. But he was a remarkable person who did some remarkable stuff. But he was not popular in his own time. Even his method of love and nonviolence was challenged, especially in the later time, period, later years of his life. When he died, he did not die with his birthday being a national holiday. He died at, at, at the bottom, if almost, if you will, in despair to the point that some of his closest followers were really concerned about him being in a depression. We forget that. And right. well, when, when he turned against poverty and he turned against Vietnam War, yeah. he hated. Right, right. Because he, he, he wasn't the white man's partner in, in, uh, in this, this effort to cover over the racism that, no. uh, that existed and still exists. You know, the way of love calls out truth. It names injustice. It names wrong. I mean, I grew up hearing the language of love in the movement of civil rights. That's where I learned it from. And from a family that was involved. I mean, that was just so that I, I can't conceive of love as simply sweet and sentimental. There's a place for that. I mean, I'm married. I know about Valentine's Day. I, you know, I got it marked on my calendar so I don't forget my anniversary. I mean, those kinds of things are important. <laughs> Um, But love is bigger than that, even that. Um, It actually, I think, is the way we were intended to live, which is why it has such positive energy. I mean, why does it feel good when you know you're loved? Mm. I was an inner city pastor for years before I became a bishop in Baltimore and worked a lot with kids in the city. And many, you know, came from struggling homes and a lot of that. 
One of the things I came to realize was that the reason for gangs was that kids who weren't getting it from home and environment were looking for the love of a family, whereas, you know, everybody knows my name. Right. I mean, even though the behavior, the outward behavior was tough and, and dangerous and sometimes violent, at the root of it was this deep longing to be loved. Brother, I mean, you've been a rabbi. I mean, been a rabbi. You are a rabbi. But I mean, you've been a pastor. You know, I have been with tough folk when they're dying, and I've never seen any just simply want to get more revenge. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, I'm sorry. I don't want to. I don't want to be show up on Judgment Day with that on my. You know, I mean, most people don't think about it. Why does it feel good to be loved? It's because you were made to be loved. You were made to love. You were made to receive it and to give it. When we live out of that energy, in spite of the fact that it can be very difficult and sometimes painful and sometimes may mean sacrificial death, there's a power in it that is salvific and whole-making. And it takes community. I really do. I think it takes community and takes kind of an ongoing living relationship with a living God, with the energies of love that come from the source of love itself. I don't think there are any secrets. <laughs> I think it's it's tied to that community and God. So let me let me ask you one last question, because I, I, I think you've, you've helped us with the God idea. I mean, you're talking about God is love, but not this uh, weak thing, but this real searing, prophetic, powerful, yes. countercultural love. So, so you've been very clear about that. So I just want to ask you, you write... Oh, you actually ask the question, can love really change the world? And I'm, I'm thinking that one of the things I love about Christianity is that the Christian mythos, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but the, the uh -huh. metaphor of the life, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus is, is such a powerful, powerful, luminous educational story. Mm -hmm. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. We're not talking right. about history right. here. Right. So. I have a sense that our culture, uh, not just America, but the whole the whole capitalist or maybe maybe humankind itself, oh. is undergoing this global crucifixion, this mm. global dark night of the soul, mm. that we have to we have to be crucified on the cross of our own ignorance and arrogance and fear yeah. and our own unbridled you know self centeredness. We have to go through that. It's got to yeah. be this absolute death of all that, yeah. all that crap, and then we go into you know into the cave of, of unknowing, I guess. And then there's a hope of a resurrection. Mm -hmm. No, no guarantee. I'm not saying that, but there's a yeah. hope of a resurrection. So when you look at all the madness going on uh, with Kenosha and the elections and all this, all this stuff. The, I don't want to say the resurgence of racism. I think it's always been there at this level, but yeah. someone's pulled the scab off yes. and we can yes. see it more raw, a in a more raw way. What do you think's going on? And can you see it or do you see it? Or can you help me understand it in the context of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection? I don't know why, <laughs> but I do know that in the dynamic of human change, both little and big, Something has to die in order for something new to be born and to come to life. Most of our religious traditions talk about this dying to self, 
um, and and something new rising to newness of life, something emerging out of that. You're not even born without. I mean, the the the, the fetus must must die to being um, an embryo fetus and all that kind of stuff, and must be born to to be a baby, a life. And I, I mean, you know what I mean. Something must be shed. You know, and in the dynamics of social change and personal change, something must come to an end in order for something new to be born, even though that something new may be related to what it was. That is true. And so there is no, I don't know exactly why change happens that way. I just know that it does. I know that they're in the the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which which for Christian folk is is patterned almost after the, the night of the Passover and the dawn of freedom and liberation in Exodus. The Hebrew slaves aren't set free until after the night of the angel of death, passing over. Why? I don't know. I just know that that's how personal change and growth and social change happens. And there's a great sermon. Um, Dr. King preached a sermon. He preached it a lot, several times, but 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 early on called A Knock at Midnight, where the the dawn and the dark are battling, that it's out of that midnight that any hope of a new dawn actually begins to emerge. But it's it's in the midst of that titanic struggle between dawn and darkness. And it's true for us now. And I don't know exactly how it's going, what it's going to look like, but I know that part of our job now is to work to call out the best because we cannot tolerate the worst. We, you know, I mean, I, I mean, you think about when we think about Kenosha or, or George Floyd, watching that man, another human being with his knee on another person's neck, snuffing out the breath of life that God put into him. And that man cries out, I can't breathe. I want my mother. We saw that. We saw the abyss. In Charlottesville, when we saw neo-Nazis and Klansmen walking through the streets of Charlottesville, shrieking hatred and bile in khakis with tiki torches in their hand, we saw what the abyss looks like. I mean, we saw day and night challenging and confronting each other. And at some point, it's in those moments when people like you and people like me must make a decision. Are we going to choose the darkness or are we going to claim the light? That's what the way of love is about. We must claim the light in ourselves as well as the light around us. And we must, well, as your, your buddy Paul, Saul of Tarsus, has said, we must uh, cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I mean, that's that's the choice we make in those moments. Uh, there used to be an old hymn that was taken out of our new hymnal. It was uh, uh, James Russell Lowell. It was once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. And there's a reality. We may be in one of those moments of decision where we as a nation must decide, will we choose to live in the darkness or will we choose the emerging, dawning possibility of the light. Amen to that. I mean, it seems to me you can tie both your crazy Christian book and the way of love by you know, saying what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is we have to hold on to the craziness of love in the yes. deepening darkness, deepening darkness of, of this uh, social, cultural 
uh, collapse. Yes, so th- this is yeah. Dave, this has been a great conversation. We are oh. out of time, and I'm really disappointed in that oh. <laughs> because <laughs> y- you are such a delight to talk uh, to talk with. Our yeah, guest today, Bishop Michael Curry, is the current presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church and is the author of a new book, Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubling Times. Bishop Curry, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. (laughs) Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Egg. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.